turn, if you would, please, to Ezra chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find this starting on page 643 and continuing on to 645. Ezra chapter 7. We read this last week. We'll read it again. And uh, a lengthy passage. But a very, very good one, very enlightening one, shall we say. And so, Ezra chapter 7 reading this in its entirety. Take just a drink of water here just before I start reading this. Ezra chapter 7. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Zariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meraoth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzai, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. Whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand 
And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priest, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem, now therefore... Be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God Deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. Whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, nethanim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the law, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged, as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Thus ends the reading. God's holy and inspired word. Well, today, my friends, we continue to look at St. Ezra's return 
Saint Ezra. Saint Ezra's return, an overview here in Ezra chapter 7. And uh, we'll at some point then, starting next week, uh, we'll be looking, uh, Lord willing, at Ezra chapter 8, which gives a more detailed account of going up to Jerusalem. But here, what we see in Ezra 7, this is sort of the overview, and that God here enables Ezra to return to Jerusalem. God enables Ezra to return to Jerusalem. This, of course, is the first part, as we've noticed, the first part of the second section of Ezra. And so if we look at, if we look at this sort of like a, uh, a play, you have Act 1, which is chapters 1 through 6, and then we have Act 2, chapters 7 through 10. So now we're in the second act of this play. The first act dealt with events from 536 to 515 B.C., the rebuilding of the temple. 536 to 515 B.C., and now we are in the year 458 B.C. 458 B.C. So if you do the math on this, it's almost 2,500 years ago, 458 B.C., what would that be? 2,481 years. A long time ago, children. So, 57 years after the events in chapter 6. Now we're coming 458 B.C. to the return of the people under Ezra. We've already mentioned that some people were persecuted, some apostatized, Others certainly were discouraged. But now we come to the people under Ezra coming back into the land. Um, once again, we note that verses 12 through 26 are in the language of Aramaic, which is similar to Hebrew, but technically a different language. Now, there are some earlier themes that we've already mentioned, the whole idea of a godly line. We'll be talking about that today as well. Uh, Church-state relations we looked at last week. And then overarching everything, we could say, is the idea of grace. Grace, God's love, overarching all of these things. As the Lord, God, Israel, to return to Jerusalem. Now last week we looked at the preparation, particularly in terms of this letter that was given by Artaxerxes the king, king of kings he calls himself, kind of arrogantly, but nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, he is the one who gives this letter and saying, look, whatever you need, I'm going to provide for it. And you can raise money from other folks here in Babylon as well. And, of course, among your own people also. But I'm going to provide for you not only personal out of my own, my own um, wealth, but also the wealth of the state as well. And at verse 21, all the treasures who are in the region beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. 
and so therefore you better do this. Silver, wheat, wine, oil, and salt without even worrying how much is there. Salt without prescribed limit. And furthermore, then, the, the, the uh, church, if you will, the church is a separate institution from the state, exempt from taxation. And uh, we talked a little bit about that last time. It's not just that, you know, sometimes the state will say, well, we just won't, yeah, right now we won't give it, we won't impose any taxes on you, church. But the, uh, the notion there is, many times, is the state is saying, but of course we could, you see. And so it's, it's the whole idea then of the, of the church then being um, not just tax-exempt, but tax-immune. It should not even enter the, the thought of anyone that the church would be under the state. The state today will say, well, it's only it's because of our grace that we don't take all of your money. And it's because of our grace that we don't tax the church. No, no, no. God is the one who has established both her church and state. And these are independent spheres, or we could say interdependent spheres. But nevertheless, one is not to lord over the other. The power to tax is the power to destroy. Very important principle. And yet, if you ask most politicians today, Democrat or Republican, they would have no clue about what I just said. None whatsoever. But you do now. You obviously now. Now you know that the church is not just tax exempt, but it is tax immune. And that's the principle that we find here in Ezra chapter 7. So the preparation, we talked about the people, uh, including uh, Ezra and the others here, and the king and his counselors and so forth. And now we come thirdly and fourthly today to the purpose and the praise. The purpose and the praise. So let's then look at the purpose of Ezra's return, the purpose. Notice that Ezra was totally involved. He's totally involved. You see in verse 10, this is really the key verse in many ways. In verse 10, we see that Ezra had prepared his heart, or we could say had set his heart, had set his heart. And he wasn't double-minded or double-hearted or with a divided heart. He had set his heart upon following after the Lord and seeking his law. This was deliberate action on his part. And so Ezra then was totally involved and totally committed. And in one sense, we could say, well, this is all part of the preparation of Ezra, to be sure, we've already talked about this back earlier, um, uh, that he had, uh, verse 6, he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And so certainly we could say we could look at this under the idea of preparation. But today we want to look at it in terms of how the preparation 
of Ezra led to his purpose with regard to bringing the people back in. And so there are three things that we see here in verse 10, all of them centered around the law of God. Seek Yahweh's law, Jehovah's law, seek the law of God. Secondly, do the law, do the law. And thirdly, teach, teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. So first of all, seek the law of God. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. So what do we know from here? Is that Ezra was dedicated, Ezra was dedicated to the law because he sought the law. You see, diligent, that is to say, careful search is required. Careful search is required. And in that law, Ezra was seeking the will of God. It was all part of his dedication to God. Notice that it was the law of Yahweh or Jehovah the God who is I am that I am. You see, Ezra could have given himself to the study of Chaldean literature or astrology. The people in that part of the world were great uh, astronomers, but also astrologers as well, trying to read in the heavens what God's will might be. But Ezra knew from where the true wisdom came. And that's why he sought the law of the Lord. But secondly, notice what we are told here, not just to seek the law of the Lord, but to do it. You know, the law is described in Scripture as a light. Thy word is a light uh, uh, unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. And so the, the scripture then is a light. But children, I want you to think about what my wife would refer to as a torch, what we know as a flashlight. So if the lights in the, in the middle of the night go out, what do you do? You reach for a flashlight, don't you, in order to illuminate But what if you decided in the middle of the night, you got the flashlight when the lights went out, but all that you did is you just took that flashlight, you just stared at that flashlight. That wouldn't do you any good, would it? So it's good to know about the flashlight. It's good to know how it works or whatever other light may be available. But the point is you use the light in order to illuminate what is around you. It doesn't do you any good simply to stare at that light, but rather you have to use it or you have to put it into practice. And indeed, we could even put it this way. It is hypocritical to know the law and not do it. It is hypocritical to know the law and not do it. And my friends, this can be true of all of us. Matter of fact, the the more you know, the more responsible you are to do. 
one of the dangers that we preachers face, you say. It is hypocritical to know the law and not to do it. There's a clear dis- difference then between theory and application. So we know the theory, we're experts, we seek the law of the Lord, we understand how it works. That's the theory. But unless we put it into practice, we're a bunch of hypocrites. As a matter of fact, there is such a thing as what is called dead orthodoxy, knowing all this great theology, all this great stuff, and yet not putting it into practice in your life. That's dead orthodoxy. You can be as orthodox, you can know all the theology in the world, be perfectly dotting every I, crossing every T, being perfectly knowledgeable and and wanting to put in, wanting to, to do all the outward things, but if it's not a matter of the heart, then it is a manifestation of hypocrisy. And so seek Yahweh's law. Secondly, do the law. Put it into practice. And thirdly, teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. Teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. So what are the statutes? These are the divine decrees. The ordinances, so statutes we could say like the Ten Commandments, that would be a set of statutes, statutory law. The ordinances, this is probably a reference to the case law in terms of the the application of the Ten Commandments. But the point is that the totality of God's law is in view. The totality of God's law is in view. Therefore, teach statutes and ordinances, or teach the law, generally conceived, teach it in Israel. Why? Because Ezra's purpose was that God's covenant people may likewise know it. Even as he was an expert, he wants to give this information, to convey this knowledge to others. And my friends, we too then should seek to have the law of God taught and explained. This is why Christian education is so important. This is why you come not just to church but to Sabbath school as well. And why you study the Bible even on your own. Or why you get together perhaps in other groups to study the Bible. We too should want to have it taught and explained for our good and the good of the people of God. So Ezra then, with this three-prong purpose, was the model reformer. Verse 10, study, conduct, and teaching. Study, conduct, and teaching. So the study, you see, he studied it, but it needed to be saved from an unreality. He needed to be saved from the idea of 
like what we call ivory tower thinkers, ivory tower theologians and philosophers who never put it in, into practice, into practicality. So the study, yes, was necessary, foundational, and yet to save it from unreality it needs to be put into practice. But that conduct, doing, do it, that conduct then was saved from uncertainty because it was to teach the statutes and ordinances. And at the same time then, that teaching was saved from shallowness and insincerity. And so we see then the purpose of Ezra. Study, do, and teach. And now we come then as the fourth major point to the praise with regard to Ezra's return, or the praise for Ezra's return. Did you notice as I was reading today that theme, that motif, if you will, that theme of God's good hand? Verse 6, the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Verse 9, on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. And verse 28, so I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. The idea of God's good hand, God's hand for good, God's providential care for his people. And so we find then praise, at least an implicit praise to the Lord because of that. But then Ezra specifically blesses God for his commission, for his giving him this assignment. He talks about the God of our fathers. And when he says the God of our fathers, what is he doing? He's thinking back to the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying that the God of our fathers is now working right now in terms of bringing us back, according to God's good hand, bringing us back into the land. And that this is all in fulfillment of the promises to those forefathers, to those patriarchs, to those fathers in the faith who had gone before them. Indeed, he says in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Why did Xerxes write this letter? Why did he authorize Ezra to go back into the land to get all of this, all of these, be blessed with all these material possessions and not to be taxed and not to be disturbed by the officials, by the bureaucrats across on the other side of the Euphrates River. It was because it was God, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord God of our fathers who had put such a thing as this in the king's heart. I'm reminded here of Proverbs chapter 21, 
and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So God then is sovereign. We see the sovereignty of God over this great and mighty king Artaxerxes, as well as over all other kings and presidents and prime ministers. But not only, he goes on then in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. He finishes the verse this way, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. To beautify or to adorn the house of Yahweh which is in Jerusalem. And here we might find similar, we might be reminded of similar passages in other uh, other. Uh, places. Um, For example, in Isaiah 55 and verse 5, surely you shall call a nation you do not know, nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Chapter 60 of Isaiah. Chapter 60 of Isaiah, verse 7. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The of Nebaioth shall minister to you with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. And verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. So the idea of adorning, of beautifying, of glorifying, if you will, the house of Yahweh, or Jehovah, which is in Jerusalem. Now, as you look at those Isaiah passages then, and and we could say here what we're seeing here in Ezra is a fulfillment of those passages from Isaiah. You see a couple things. First of all, portraits of Christ once again being displayed because after all, he is the one who is sacrificed. That's the whole point. He is the one who was sacrificed. But also, it is the Gentiles who were participating, as we see in Isaiah chapter 60. And even, we could say, Artaxerxes, even though he doesn't directly worship the Lord, yet it is sort of an anticipation of what would later take place in terms of the nations. And so to beautify, to adorn the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. This house, this temple, this place of God's dwelling, and again, fulfilled in Christ, who is the true temple. And then finally, we see in this regard, in terms of praise, not only the idea of God's good hand and Ezra blessing God for his commission, but verse 28, he blesses God for the encouragement in pursuance of his commission. He, he, tell, he says here, he, the Lord, has extended mercy to me. He has extended mercy mercy to me before the king 
and his counselors and all the king's mighty princes. But he has extended mercy to me. My friends, this is true for us today. This is true for us today. And so as we are engaged in the Lord's work, we can be assured of his smile upon us. And we can be assured that in point of fact, it is because the Lord has given mercy to us that we are enabled to have this desire, the desire that Ezra had, to know and to do and to teach the law of God. Two points of application. The first is this. Do not forget the importance of God's law. Do not forget the importance of God's law. This is one of the neglected areas in the church today. But God has clearly revealed his will, which is to be studied, obeyed, and taught. The Westminster Larger Catechism reminds us that there's a threefold purpose of the law. It first demonstrates that we are sinners. Secondly, it will drive us either further into sin or to Christ. It will force us to make a choice. And thirdly, it will teach us how to live. And so the law is important as a revelation of God's will, but also it should be an encouragement to us because it is an objective standard by which to measure things. You ever tried to estimate how, how um, long a, a piece of board is or whatever? What do you have to do? Generally speaking, you get out a tape measure, right? Or a yardstick, and you measure things. You measure that. Well, we have the yardstick. We have the measuring rod of the Word of God. It is the objective standard. So we don't have to guess. It is the objective standard by which to measure things. And so it is for us today. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New. And then secondly, rejoice, my friends, in the provision for salvation. Rejoice in the provision for salvation. Why were the people coming back in to the land? In order to prepare the way for Messiah, for the Christ, the anointed one of God, Jesus He is the one, unlike Artaxerxes, he is the one who actually is the king of kings. He's the true king of kings. But at the same time, not only is he king, he's also priest. Because you see, he came into the world, why? In order to die. And that too is what setting up the temple is all about all the sacrifices, all those thousands and thousands of animals, those bloody sacrifices pointing to the one great sacrifice of the cross. In this regard, as we rejoice in the provision for salvation, we celebrate the grace of God. We might even entitle this book The Gospel According to St. Ezra. 
You know, we talk about the gospel according to St. Matthew and St. Mark and St. Luke and St. John. My friends, this is the gospel, the good news, according to St. Ezra, including the idea of the sovereignty of God, which overarches all of these activities, including turning the heart of the king. And Ezra's dedication, you see, to the law, this is so important, Ezra's dedication to the law was not, again, for its own sake, per se, but it was in order to pave the way for Jesus to come. And so as he was dedicated to it, as he learned it, as he sought it, and as he did it, and as he taught it, in all of those things, it was all part of coming back into the land and setting up the scene so that ultimately Jesus would come to Jerusalem as the one who is our Savior. But on the other hand, we not only see God's grace here, we must be reminded of God's wrath. We find, of course, the wrath of Artaxerxes, don't we? Verse 26, whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. That's the wrath of Artaxerxes. We don't have to worry about that. We have to worry about the wrath of the Lord, for he is angry with those who violate his law. And his wrath, then, cannot ultimately be appeased through our sacrifices, but rather his wrath can be appeased by the sacrifice of his son who is portrayed by means of all these offerings by which the temple, as it were, is glorified and is beautified and is adorned. Though, my friends, let us rejoice then in the provision for salvation and in the fact that it is the Lord Jesus who is our only King and Savior. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And so, Lord, we pray that we would love Thee more, that we would love Thee and submit to Thee, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Grant that, O oh God, we pray. Have mercy and enable us to rejoice in the salvation that thou hast provided. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.